You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Alex Krutz. Alex is the Managing Director at Patriot Industrial Partners, an aerospace and defense advisory firm that focuses on manufacturing strategy and supply chain optimization. Today, Alex and I are discussing the challenges facing the aerospace industry and how companies like Boeing, Airbus, and their many suppliers are responding. We will also examine new technologies like cargo and passenger drones. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Alex, you wrote an article for Flight Global titled, Will Airbus Transform the Aerospace Industry? In it, you describe Airbus's adoption of digital design, manufacturing, and services. Boeing is also planning substantial investments in digital manufacturing. These are both intended to integrate the concept of digital twins into aircraft production. What are the advantages of this new technology? Well, number one, it, 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 uh, it creates collaborative uh, you know, robotics and uh, manufacturing. Um, it creates better quality in the systems. Um, it uh, creates more efficiency and, and faster production. Uh, and, and really the biggest thing is, is less defects, right? So the more design, the more engineering we have up front um, to better give or to better um, implement work instructions on the factory floor, uh, it makes it more efficient and better quality. And, and what does that look like? So you're basically, because CAD and CAM have been around for a while, but that often is about individual parts or assemblies. This is for the whole life cycle of the vehicle, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the digital twin, there's, you know, companies like uh, Siemens and, uh, and uh, others doing, you know, Katia and, uh, you know, additional modeling. Uh, but the Great thing is it's, um, you know, this this kind of merging theme about digital thread all the way from, you know, the supply chain being able to uh, design and manufacture into the model uh, where there's kind of plug and play. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the uh, adoption, right, you know, out there, the, you know, A320, um, uh, some of their changes, the T7 Boeing trainer. And so, um, but all the way, like you said, from the supply chain into production, and what's great about it, it's also into the aftermarket life cycle, right? Where it might, uh, you know, um, help some of the uh, design engineering on the aftermarket side and services. Um, you point out that uh, in the same article, you point out that Airbus is consolidating its industrial footprint. This reverses the long trend of outsourcing or spinning off activities that uh, companies like Airbus don't view as core. What trends make this important now? I think that there were, for many years, uh, everything was core to the aircraft and that, uh, you know, Airbus and Boeing for many years, really up until about 2004, 2005, did everything, including fuselage manufacturing, right? And that was uh, kind of the start of the 787. Um, and also Airbus uh, followed shortly after with divestiture of aerostructures as non-core uh, to their business. And, um, and that's been for about uh, 15 years. And we're starting to see now some of that coming back into the into the fold because over the last 15 years, uh, with the structure specifically, you'll start to see uh, cost and quality issues and other um, uh, other uh, uh, other requirements that need to be met that maybe aren't or are being challenged because they're not maybe close to the 
uh, core production systems. So you, you definitely see that consolidation of uh, the structures back into, you know, what Boeing, or I'm sorry, what Airbus considers as core to their uh, airplane manufacturing. Um, I remember watching with awe the production of the Airbus A380, and there were like tail fins and wings being dragged all across Europe. You know, yep. they're assembled here, they're painted here, they're they're in final assembly over here. Um, this switch to insourcing, to doing more uh, at at Airbus itself, implies a shift from. Uh, 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 distributing the work in a way that provides economic benefit all over Europe to to more of an efficiency focus. How is it that they're able to do that? And what lessons can the rest of the industry learn from that? So, so I think two things are happening there, maybe a sl- slightly different in the sense that they're consolidating external companies that were spun off uh, into the Airbus company. And what they're doing is consolidating that footprint, so they're they're optimizing their structure. So it's 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 in the core now, not uh, external companies they purchase from, uh, and also starting to look at their you know manufacturing footprint. I think that's one thing, and that's and that's bringing it closer to their design uh, development design and and uh, you know production system. I think the second thing that that they're doing um, is is looking at the nucleus of suppliers and looking at strategic sourcing. Uh, and supplier partnerships that are a little bit maybe closer to their manufacturing facilities, right? So um, they've, you know, obviously done it in Toulouse, they've done it in uh, Mobile, Alabama, they've done it in China. And so so I think that uh, establishing those, uh, you know, key supply chains or those hubs or clusters um, a little bit closer um, to the uh, manufacturing facility, right, is going to be a really good thing. So. Um... There is considerable excitement and investment around electric air taxis. Uh, what are these services going to look like, do you think? And what are the challenges they face? There's, there's people that are a lot smarter than me from a, a technical standpoint. But generally, batteries are heavy and they don't produce a lot of uh, energy that you need to offset the cost. Uh, before you have to recharge it, right? So I mean, that's in its most simplistic form. Um, and the, that's one challenge is kind of the technology of batteries. I think the other one is uh, pilots, right? We still have to have qualified pilots flying in the air. And so it, it, when you look at the four-seater, six-seater, seven-seaters that are out there, um, you have to have a pilot and that cost of that training and, and such is pretty significant, Right. And so to offset both uh, what I would say, you know, maybe the third thing I'll talk about in three is the infrastructure, right? Where do you charge it? Where do you land? Where do they get picked up? Um, And how do they get serviced? So batteries, pilots, and infrastructure would be the three things that I would say are probably the biggest issues. And they all lead to then, how is it going to be utilized? Is it going to be fully utilized? And then what's the cost of it? And if that cost, is that acceptable to the people, uh, to the customers that want to take that trip? So that's the three main important things, utilization and the cost of the ticket. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, the other, the other, I mean, you raise the price of the pilot. The other challenge or, or, or potential uh, is autonomous drones. And you're seeing them in use for, for packages. Uh, I think you you mentioned that Wing, which is a sub- subsidiary of I think it was Amazon, 
um, has received a, a license. Maybe it's a temporary or, or geofenced license to try out this technology. Do you, know, do you know how that's going? Is that becoming a popular thing? I I think that it's going to become more popular, uh, especially in, in probably more rural environments, right? Yeah. You know, as as you have cities, it, it would make sense in, in urban environments that it could drop it off on a porch of, of the 30th floor <laughs> somewhere. That would be fantastic. But, you know, the minute one of those, um, you know, strikes something that that's, you know, there's a lot to be um, understood about urban uh, urban mobility, right? Uh, yeah. Autonomous urban mobility. So where I think it actually grows first is is in the uh, rural uh, settings, right? From one point in Iowa to another point in Iowa, right? Or Kansas, which I'm from, right? So I'll use maybe Kansas in yeah. some of the uh, kind of farm communities, more, you know, kind of far reaching communities where there's uh, a little bit less, um, you know, infrastructure in the sense of, of uh, having to plan around. Um, so I see that and maybe into some areas of uh, medical transport, um, you know, which uh, could be, uh, you know, replacing helicopters. But really, again, that's I see that all a lot of that starting in that rural communities where it can be tested and proved out. There's also helipads out in some of these communities, smaller little airports, so that infrastructure is there. Um, and there might be, you know, uh, you know, some pilot training that, you know, local community residents could, you know, could do uh, to satisfy. So those kind of three things that we talked about earlier, right, where, you know, you can have lower utilization, you can figure out uh, on a smaller scale, the training of pilots and, um, and the cost is kind of offset by what you're actually doing, right, package movement, medical and such. Yeah. So that's where I really think it starts. Um, I think it's... Uh, um, it's kind of a stretch in the uh, urban communities at this yeah. point. We won't see it in Manhattan, maybe, but I mean, I, I like I like where you're going with that because these everything starts in a niche, right? And that right. medical niche is is a, an amazing potential, right? You could Absolutely. you could have a heart move from one hospital to the other in record time. Absolutely, like there there's there's so much technology and capability in that area that could save lives. Um, so I think it has a place and maybe 10 years down the road might look back at this and say I was totally wrong and it's gone, you know, uh, ultra urban. Right. Um, but I, I think that the adoption in that and the regulatory and all the other uh, issues um, might take a bit of time. But I think it has a niche and it starts um, in, in, in smaller, more remote locations with some really fantastic uses. Switching gears a little bit and looking around the world, um, you, you wrote an article about COMAC, which is the uh, Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China, and they are developing a C-19, C919 narrowbody passenger jet. What challenges are COMAC facing with the development of that vehicle? I think a couple of them. <clears throat> Number one, it's very closely tied to the Western supply chain, um, uh, really outside of everything that's uh, structurally oriented is built uh, in the West that could be anywhere in Europe, UK, uh, US uh, and such. Uh, so they're very, very connected right now. And that technology is probably a generation old on, uh, you know, the 737NG and some of the older, uh, you know, uh, platforms, uh, but nonetheless, um, developing their supply chain is gonna be, um, I think uh, a challenge, um, they'll get there. 
I'm, 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 I'm sure of it in the years to come. It might not be in the next few years, but in the years to come, they will get there to be able to develop their own technology for commercial aerospace. And I think the other, other issue is, is after aftermarket and, uh, you know, servicing the aircraft, right? Um, that's, that infrastructure takes many years to develop, you know, having parts uh, in certain hubs, being able to keep, uh, you know, utilization and, and, uh, and, and lights. So that's, uh, uh, that's a big piece of it as well. So I think supply chain and probably aftermarket support. So, I mean, it is a fascinating world, isn't it? Because the U.S. and China have a sometimes fraught relationship, and yet they're very closely tied um, commercially or, or industrially. Um, and it, and it's, it's surprising <laughs> to me that there are components that China can only get from the Western world. And, and you know, the U.S. in particular is, is discovering that there are parts they can only get from, from China as well. What are what are some of the part like I guess engines would be one maybe avionics that China is not able to build on its own just yet? Yeah, so uh, engines obviously GE uh, and all that surrounding technology, uh, flight software. Um, you know, obviously it's not hardware but software um, are key. Uh, other things that take years to develop, uh, you know, landing gears, uh, nacelles mm. around the engines. Uh, and certain uh, certain types of mechanical systems, right, that uh, uh, need to operate. So I think those are all, um, you know, really important areas that they're looking at, and and they're um, the understanding and working with that technology is happening through joint ventures, right, with you know um, tier one and major you know major suppliers, right, that uh, would like to get into that market. What uh, type of plane would it replace in fleets in Asia? What, is it the, the A320 or the 737? What size of jet is this? I think it's both. It's, it's both. They're, 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 it's right in the same uh, size of seats. Um, now, the only challenge is that it doesn't fly as far and it's not as efficient uh, because of some of that older technology. Because of the older engines um, or... Uh, yeah, older and so you know, uh, fuel burn is a little bit higher. Uh, nautical miles, uh, the aircraft's a bit heavier, right, mm -hmm. than um, the seven three seven, because a lot of those uh, a lot of those de design improvements that have happened over the years to reduce weight, um, they're just now looking at right, and so right. Um, and 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 again, you look at predominantly what's uh, uh, Chinese provided is uh, from a supply chain is is structures, right, and so when you have a metallic fuselage and wings, and that's kind of the first generation or maybe second generation, if you include their experience on AR, uh, uh, ARJ, um, you know, as they're kind of improving that, they maybe haven't been able to reduce the weight yet. So uh, it, it's, it's higher fuel consumption and flies shorter. But I think that that's going to be okay because for them, for the coming years, because they're going to be able to uh, utilize it for a domestic market, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's really what their aim is, is for a domestic market. Right. Um, so talking about some of the challenges of, of where we get our parts, um, you've described a process, and I, I don't want to get confused, maybe this is a different thing, but you've described intershoring. And mm -hmm. to me, an example of that was um, Saab, which many in North America know as a car company, but is yeah. also, uh, you know, they have their own uh, fighter jets. They're an aerospace company. Um, they've established manufacturing facilities in the U.S. and hope to be a significant contributor to U.S. government contracting. 
And this sort of reminds me of the boom in the 80s when they were Toyota and Honda and, and Nissan were doing what they called transplant, transplants in the US in the 80s and 90s. Um, how significant is this trend uh, of foreign military contractors setting up shop in the US? It's pretty significant. Uh, last October, I was at the Air Force Association conference and one third of all the booths and exhibitors were uh, foreign companies, right? Mm-hmm. So um, th- there's a lot of incentives, right? Um, you know, the US dollar uh, being low, right? Uh, from an investment standpoint, uh, lots of universities and, and local state governments are providing uh, for foreign businesses that want to establish a uh, foreign owned but US run uh, business uh, or, uh, you know, providing a lot of incentives from the, the government and also partnerships by university to, you know, help with study, uh, you know, with uh, technology and, and uh, research and development. So there's lots of, um, there's lots of uh, bonuses, right? Lots of uh, incentives, you know, for companies to come and set up here. Um, you know, there's some things they have to do. They have to set up SSAs, you know, uh, uh, which are, you know, um, kind of firewalls to their foreign corporations right. so that they're really U.S. run. Um, but they're really good, um, good opportunities. It's American jobs. And um, but, uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, that's what Saab did. And, it, and, and they've created a, a state of the art world class factory for the T7 uh, trainer, uh, Boeing T7 trainer that they're uh, partnered on with them. That T7 has been around for a long time, hasn't it? I think there's been variations. The T7 is actually newer. There's like a T6 and, and a few older generations, but the T7's um, a bit of a newer model. Uh, and that's actually one back to your earlier conversation um, that was uh, digital manufacturing um, was uh, has been completed and should, uh, should start um, uh, getting to the services here soon. You're right. Year, I'm so. thinking of the T6. You're right. Yeah. It's the T6 you see in the shots with the shuttles landing, right? Mm-hmm. All, like uh, escorting them in. Yeah. yeah the, the, all the trainers, they go, you know, in sequential order, but yeah, the T7's um, uh, really a lot newer technology and, uh, you know, manufacturing methods is a really, really big part of the, those improvements that Boeing and, and Saab have made. And, and um, it's great to have Saab's participation on the program. They're usually a very uh, advanced forward thinking uh, company. So it's great to have their participation here in the U S and, and a part of such a, an important program for, uh, for U S national defense. Yeah. And they're a NATO ally, right? So it's a, it's a good thing. Um, talking about the various ways that companies work together and also provide services to a customer. One of the things you hear, particularly in military side of aerospace is this notion of cost plus. So, what are the what, how does cost plus work? What are its pros and cons? And do you see it becoming more or less common with the way governments are sourcing their equipment? Um, well, it, it's I don't know if it's so much governments but as it would be kind of OEMs, uh, okay. kind of doing it. And I would say that it's probably going to be a little less prevalent for a couple of reasons. Number one is, um, typically when there's new programs out there that incentivizes suppliers to join that program and invest and take, um, but right now there's not a whole lot of new programs. There's a few on the defense side, right. With the B 21 and, um, but, but the mature ones, right. Uh, seven, eight, seven, you know, seven, three, seven, eight, three, 20 F 35. Um, there's, you know, a lot of mature programs out there. So 
I think that there's less for, you know, perhaps, you know, the larger companies to wave in front of the supply chain. Um, and I think also uh, from lessons learned, right, that uh, there's improvements to margins, right, that bigger companies or the government for that matter, uh, you know, defense contracting gets improvements as they squeeze the, you know, the supply chain. Um, but but there has to be an understanding and awareness of the risk associated with that, right? You know, um, we don't want to, you know, push out qualified suppliers because they can't make money, right? And right. that's, um, so I, I do believe in that there, you know, in order for us to have a healthy ecosystem, we have to have a balance where everybody has to has to do decent to well financially, right? If it's tilted one way or the other, then um, then ultimately there's going to be risk in the supply chain uh, down the line, right? That, well, that, that's a, a, so a couple of things. You use the term OEM, which I didn't even realize was associated with aircraft. I thought it was only cars, but that's original equipment manufacturers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a tangent, uh, but the way you described a healthy relationship with suppliers is very much uh, the Toyota way. Mm -hmm. the, they take the view that you, you, you're not trying to get every penny out of your supplier, that it's a long-term relationship, or you're not going to get mm -hmm. quality parts after a while. Absolutely. It does remind me of that approach. Um, There's a lot to be said about the Toyota way, right? It, it's, been a, it's been a fantastic method and methodology for, for many years. Um, and I think you know, probably the aerospace industry could maybe, you know, kind of reflect on that a little bit. I know that there's this healthy tension between aerospace and, and uh, automotive, right, you know, um, for a variety of reasons, but um, there's a lot of things, the Toyota production system, uh, you know, and the, and the uh, Toyota way that are, are, are I think, um, uh, really good methods that we just need to continue to look at and see how they're applicable to the aerospace industry. Mm-hmm. When you say healthy tension, are you are are you referring to sort of the the cultural tension between that's how they do it and that's how we do it, or exactly. are you referring to Honda trying to make its own jets? <laughs> no, 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 uh, no, not Honda. It's its own jets, um, but more of they do it like this, we do it like that, right? In well, and you also do it in batches of a hundred, which is very different. Which is very different, right? And the and the quality requirements are a little bit more stringent, right? Versus the high volume. <laughs> You know, yeah. so there's 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 a bit of differences, um, but at the end of the day, it's manufacturing, right? You know, high quality on time product to to get customer service. So I think that there's uh, some very common themes that uh, can and are shared between the two of of how to conduct business. One of the one of the interesting things you talk about when it comes to consolidation. You know, this idea that the pendulum swings, right? One day it's, we're just going to focus on what we do best and we're going to outsource everything else. And then the next day it's, we're going to start bringing things back into the core. One of the things affecting that is that OEMs tend to get better interest rates than suppliers. I thought that was an interesting uh, insight that may affect the fact that during lean times, the OEMs can bulk up. Is that something you're seeing going on? They can bulk up, but when you, they bulk up, it's all about uh, production rates. If you if they have higher production rates, they can absorb their overhead costs across more units, right? But when you have lower production rates, um, having more uh, internal manufacturing or vertically integrated manufacturing can be a challenge for big companies, whether it's aircraft manufacturers or large tier ones uh, or twos. 
So there's kind of that balance in what we kind of call the make buy, right? What are we making in house and what do right. we buy externally, right? And so um, it as as kind of programs go up and down and new ones come in, um, that make buy strategy and analysis is always really important to be done. Uh, you know, on a one-year, you know, three-year, five-year outlook to see where it's going because you can't just the pendulum does swing, but it's it, it's slow, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's not usually unless it's like something's you know crazy out of whack or you know uh, there's been an emergency of some type. Usually, um, you know, sourcing, uh, insourcing, or outsourcing takes a, a bit of time uh, to go complete. Um, I'm going a bit back and forth, but you keep making me curious about other things. So um, one of the things going on with the passenger drone market is uh, you know, you were talking about some tension between aerospace and, and, and automotive. There's also a tension now between Silicon Valley and aerospace. Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is kind of invading and in it's in its own way in aerospace. I mean, uh, SpaceX is a huge example, but the, also in the drone space, you're seeing mm-hmm. automotive companies, companies out of out of Silicon Valley. How do you see the industry shaking out over the next decade? So there's a lot of capital going in, right? A mm-hmm. lot of capital going in by Silicon Valley and investors. Um, you know, uh, be it through uh, you know companies that have are revenue generating and producing product. Some are going public, some are going through the SPAC process, right? Special purpose acquisition corporations, right? Which, yeah. you know, a lot of money joins with a <laughs> non-revenue business to for the potential future. Um, so I, I see that as the main um, support right now that there's an influx of, of, of cash into the industry for new technologies, but a lot of it's centered around EV tall. It's centered around some defense products and, uh, maybe a little bit about, you know, software and, and services, right? Uh, maybe less in the R&D of, you know, traditional aerospace or defense manufacturing. So I think it's a good thing, but I think we also have to uh, recognize that um, uh, that could be, a, could a bubble be developing, right? Um, with a lot of money going into non-revenue-based companies. Now, again, I'm, I'm all about technology and forward thinking, but at, at a certain point, um, it might become too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be, the aspirations might be too high uh, or the market might not be big enough, right? It, like you said earlier, it might be niche, right? And sometimes niche markets don't have a lot of volume or, or um, you know, uh, opportunity at first and can uh, can those businesses survive that, that uh, cyclical growth into um, a new segment of, of product? Right. So, uh, you are known as the factory doctor and, uh, what are aerospace and defense factories, common ailments doctor, and what is the prescription? Uh, a lot of it starts with like manufacturing one-on-one type stuff, right? Um, that's, that's one of the first places I start with companies is, um, you know, are you ordering your material on time? How are you sourcing your materials at long lead time? cheaper mill runs versus short distribution. Are you starting on time, right? Are you getting it there? Do you have your planning, your engineering uh, all completed? And are you starting so the factory has enough time to to complete it? Um, Have we looked at uh, optimizing some processes? Like what products do you put together 
what I call nesting out in the factory, right? You know, so that way you can optimize your setups and your machines, your spindle times, your operators. Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you do like demand planning and forecasting with your customers? Uh, there's even other things, you know, uh, contract review, like what are you accepting and working with your customers on? Um, how do you flow down their requirements, you know, and looking at kind of quality as built in versus inspected. So these are all things that um, I look at, you know, scheduling and, uh, you know, shipment logistics, um, what type of things are we working on? So a lot of those are, are basic, basic things that a lot of businesses just don't do well or don't get right. And that's what I go in and help companies with is, is uh, first, let's start with the basics before you can get into advanced manufacturing and, and uh, digital twins, digital thread, or industry 4.0. You know, a lot of those things are really great. But you, first of all, you have to start with a, a, um, a good foundation. And so that's a lot of what I do. So that, that's really interesting. I'd like to explore that a little bit. So, uh, I mean, it's a common thing in, in, in any tech field that people think they can just buy the program and everything's going to get better. <clears throat> but it may not be true that you buy the program and everything gets better, but if you buy the program, does it help you get through the phases of industry one, two, and three, or is it just too much and you really do need to go through that gradual progression? Program systems, they're all tools to help you get from point A to point B, right? And so companies need to know where they're at right now and that's the true, what we call a Kaizen process. What's your current state, right? Where are you at right now? And what's your future state? Where do you want to go? And how are you going to get there, right? And so there's um, the systems are a tool to help you get there. They're not the, the they're not the, uh, they're not the uh, main focus, if you will. And a lot of times companies will say, hey, this is going to solve our problem. And that's not really the case, right? Because then you have other soft issues when you talk about, employee training, um, organizational culture, you know, how, uh, you know, leadership, right? Uh, how, how you, uh, you know, incentivize teams. So those are all some of the softer and very important things, but systems are a tool. They're not the, uh, they're not the ends, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so the aerospace industry was severely impacted by the pandemic. Um, you have written that the, and this is in quotes now, the first aerospace supply chain pain point will likely be within the air, airplane engine segment, which historically has issues during demand increases and past su super cycle ramp ups, end quote. So why is that? And what can OEMs do about it? I think <clears throat> there's kind of two main things that I see there. Uh, and, and it's very common to hear in earnings from larger companies that forgings and castings, it's a black art. It's very hard to do, right? Um, whether it's pouring or forging, um, you have to get certain grain structures. Um, there is um, high, you know, uh, uh, a uh, high level of, of scrap uh, or defects. Um, not because uh, it's just it's just byproduct uh, uh, of how the product is built, and um, you know, getting the requirements that are needed for uh, for engines. And so um, that those are sometimes 12, 15 months in length. And so they have to be staffed up, right? They have to have all the raw materials in, they have to be working. And sometimes they have to make two to produce one, right? And so you have to ramp up. So forgings and castings has always been um, a challenge part of the industry. I think the second part is, um, is uh, uh, 
transfers of work, right? So um, the engine companies for a long time have had uh, a tail of suppliers, right? So they have 80% of their suppliers are kind of strategic suppliers, but then this other 20% uh, is what they is what they would typically call the tail that are smaller, kind of mom and pop, tier three, tier four businesses that just over time, they picked up another supplier, picked up another, picked up another. And if the health of those are not doing well, or they want to consolidate those, uh, you know, uh, from a transfer of work of component here to component there, um, that's, uh, there's going to be some challenge within that as well, right? So those are the two main things that I see the kind of the very small suppliers that they might be moving and then the forgings and castings uh, within the engines. There's a, there's a lot going on in the automotive, automotive industry as well, thanks to parts constraints. Are there any parts in common between the challenges of uh, automotive and, and uh, aerospace, or is it very different parts suppliers that you rely on? Um, there's some commonality in aluminums uh, in how they're bent, you know, at, at forming shops and such. Um, but traditionally, uh, the composites manufacturing is a little bit different with aerospace because of autoclaves and some of the quality requirements, uh, whether it's uh, pressure and heat uh, that have to be tested in for uh, or burn uh, that uh, aerospace has to test in that quality that necessarily I don't think um, those same requirements are. So there might be some similar methods, uh, but that's how automotive can yield uh, higher rates because of, um, I'll call it, you know, uh, you know, fewer requirements that need to be met on the product, right? Yeah. Well, and they can be heavier and so have a better margin of safety too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you see permanent impacts resulting from the supply shortages? Like, is this going to change the way the industry works forever or is it just a blip? I think it's probably somewhere in between. Um, There's been shortages and other, you know, major events in the past that have taken a few years. I think it's going to take a few years to to sort through, uh, you know, some of the the business failures, some of the um, uh, uh, logistics bottlenecks, some of the, the costing and price issues. Uh, availability of materials, right? So I think it'll take a couple of years. So I wouldn't say a blip, but, um, you know, are we talking about some of these issues five years from now? I don't think so. Um, but for the next 18 to 36 months, absolutely. So I have to ask you just for personal personal interest. Um, it strikes me that between all the destruction that's happened in the, in the airline industry, I mean, the demand destruction anyway, um, and all the pent up demand and the fact that we haven't been making planes as much as we, we would normally, it strikes me that in a couple of years, plane tickets are going to be very expensive. Is that true? Or do you see something that makes that not true? I think that we've seen some increase, uh, you know, uh, increase in tickets um, right now. Uh, I think it comes back down because right before the pandemic I don't know exactly, but I would say for probably a year, a couple of years, uh, airlines started to become profitable after many years of not being profitable, right? <clears throat> so I think that uh, one of the big things that was a big changing factor was uh, a system, right? Scheduling systems, uh, you know, and how to how to optimize uh, seats. And if you probably recall, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, you'd always have a middle seat open and it would be kind of three quarters full, Airlines have gotten really, really good at, at optimizing the flights, when to put on a new flight because they have enough demand 
uh, to be able to fill it, right? So I think as they continue to bring uh, out parked airplanes and uh, utilization of aircraft and more flights start to happen, I think that we're going to have an increase in profitability with the airlines back to where they were. Um, it's probably about two or three years out to really, like I said, you know, really kind of work through some of these things. Um, but I don't see that uh, uh, high tickets will um, uh, be a long-term thing. Now, the only caveat is if oil goes to $100 a barrel, yeah. um, you know, all bets off the table, everything's going to be expensive, right? Yes. So uh, there could be some, um, you know, macroeconomic factors that I'm not considering in this statement, but if everything is um, as it is kind of today and we progressively uh, are getting better in this industry, I, I see that ticket prices should stay the same if not come down a little bit. Another sort of idle curiosity question. I know this is a bit outside your field, but uh, I understood that one of the reasons flights were getting cheaper was because there was a rethink on the hub and spoke hub and spoke model. Like it used to be you take a giant aircraft from one huge airport to another, and then you have to take two commuter flights to the giant airports. Mm -hmm. And now you can do more direct because of the planes like the 737, right? Is that is that a change or, or am I misinterpreting that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and also the A321, uh, which NEO and, and their longest variant, which is called XLR, uh, extended long range, um, it's basically on, on the bottom end of what Boeing used to do with the 757, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's a, it, it's what they call the middle market and there's kind of a hole in it right now. And, and the A321 XLR is filling that for the most part, the 787-10, right, um, is, is slightly smaller um, and, and lower range than that. But you're absolutely right. Those two aircraft are going to be used as the kind of point to point versus a hub, uh, hub type system. Um, I think that also from a few years back, uh, planes like the 787 and A350, uh, for that matter, Boeing 787 and, and Airbus A350 um, have also created point-to-point uh, -point longer longer routes uh, that were maybe once upon a time done by uh, the 777, 747, or A380. Mm -hmm. So those longer point-to-point -point, um, are are kind of growing as well. So that's uh, that's definitely going to be a trend that will continue. So one of the consultations you have done was with Spirit Aero, uh, a Boeing supplier. Uh, since then, the company has faced a sudden drop in demand due to the grounding of the 737 MAX and the pandemic, of course. So uh, you made some observations about how they're taking advantage of the lull. What, what are they doing to prepare for the future? So they really focused in on quality, right? Uh, cleaning up their business, um, foreign object debris or FOD uh, awareness, um, a customer-centric approach, right? Really working uh, with your, your, your customers on their product. Uh, so that's on the quality side. Uh, digital, um, they've really tied in, uh, you know, new warehousing where they have PIC systems to get parts to the factory more efficiently through some robotics. They have digital threads into the supply chain. Uh, that's uh, going to be, be a good thing. And then a lot has happened on the manufacturing floor, advanced manufacturing, where they have manufacturing engineering planning that's on, uh, that's very visual, that shows work instructions to the operators. Uh, there's a little bit of, which is really cool, uh, some digital reality or augmented reality where they could put on some type of visors and see how, how the production should be going. I think that's in its, 
kind of uh, inception, but it, it's really kind of industry leading to say, if there's a newer employee, how can they go and see what it should look like kind of through the process? Um, and uh, being able to see uh, what, what jobs need to be worked on, a lot of visual factory. So uh, they've been doing a lot of a lot of really good things that uh, I think uh, companies, larger companies should take notice of. There's a couple of threads in there I'd like to pull on. One is, um, you know, you're in, you're, you're, you are interested in, and probably a proponent of lean manufacturing. And one of the things that comes out of Toyota production system is always just go to the Gemba, right? And here we have a situation where you might go to the Gemba, but you're wearing goggles. <laughs> and that could really shrink the distance between suppliers and OEMs. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know the augmented reality and the goggles in, in that type of system, how that'll be for the suppliers to the OEMs or tier ones like Spirit. But I definitely could see it in the factory, right, where it gives visual work instructions, right? That's a big part of the future. And that's to the, back to the point we talked about with systems, right? If you have good manufacturing methods, right, st stability in your production process, and then you add this into it, it can really enhance your production capabilities. And so I think the first place is really inside the factory, improving when you're putting all the components together and creating an assembly is, is gonna be a really big opportunity for these tier ones like Spirit um, and utilizing those tools. One area where manufacturing often suffers is the lack of communication between silos. You know, you've got your engine team and your, I don't know, I'm making stuff up, your fuselage yeah. team and your avionics team. How can aerospace companies increase collaboration between teams? So can you say that maybe a little bit differently? So one of the, so I'm thinking of, uh, I'll come back to automotive because that's, mm -hmm. I'm a little more familiar. I'm, I've never worked in it, but I've, I've studied it. Yep. Yep. So you have your engine team and you have yep. your, your transmission team and, and they have a stable interface between the two. And that means yeah, they yeah, can work okay. separately without, work, yep. without consulting one another. But sometimes it's at that interface that you can make the best improvements. Yeah. And, yeah, and so how do you encourage that kind of collaboration between teams in aerospace? I'm getting really technical here, but um, in aerospace, we call it IPTs or integrated product teams, right? So as, as, as airplanes are developed, uh, technologies are improved and, and, and implemented, uh, manufacturing and into the supply chain, those integrated product teams uh, or program management structures will uh, you know, put multiple different business uh, segments together uh, to make sure that they're designing uh, you know, very safe, uh, very efficient, you know, good cost, uh, good quality, all these things uh, into their systems together. So that's, those integrated product teams are less relevant at the smaller suppliers as they are at the larger tier one, you know, companies or those airplane manufacturers where they have to bring these big systems together. And those IPTs are really important. And, and that's been, I think, one of the things in aerospace that's gone done well for, for many years is that collaboration amongst those different teams. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. And if you, I just want to geek out a little bit because I, I have this manufacturing aerospace manufacturing expert with me. So this uh, talking about proponents of agile manufacturing. So agile, uh, the way I understand it, it really looks at uh, continuous improvement, right? That, that uh, not just to the manufacturing, um, but to the product itself. So it's not just do it and 
So agile wants to say, let's do it and figure it out. And lean wants to say, let's figure it out and then do it. Um, how can aerospace companies capture the advantages of both the, the experimentation and the planning? Uh, do you see any changes in the way companies are thinking about how to do that? Yeah, the, it, what's dangerous is trying to make changes on an unstable or unmature system, right? And so um, I'm always an advocate of, of have a good infrastructure, have a good stability to be able to build upon, right? And then continuous improvement or the tinkering or changing uh, really has benefits, right? But I've seen kind of too often that the infrastructure or the base is not well-established and then we then teams or people, you know, companies try to change and, and sometimes that creates additional variability or defects or, you know, uh, inefficiencies in the process. So, um, so I'm a very I'm a big believer of establish your infrastructure and foundation and then uh, change away, right? Yeah, and I guess one of the, the things that is more challenging in aerospace than in automotive, you know, they say the every, every third car coming off the assembly line at Tesla is different than the one before. You can't do that with an aircraft because it's a certified type, right? So people in the field have to be able to fix it. People have to be able to fly it. It so I assume there's a very low cadence of changes from one aircraft type to another. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of regulatory compliance in uh, how and when changes can be made. So when it's approved um, through its, you know, through its design and development, and then pass through, they're very strict requirements. Um, there are some companies that have design authority or can make changes uh, through their, you know engineering departments uh, through delegated authority. Um, but most uh, but most changes have to be approved kind of up the line to the aircraft OEM uh, and many of them through to the regulatory authorities. So um, there's a high consistency from plane to plane uh, because of the nature of this is what's certified. So this is what has to fly, right? So this has been terrific. I have, I have one last question. I hope it's a fun one for you. It, um, and the, I've heard the expression that if it looks right, it flies right. So my question to you is, what is the most beautiful plane in the air today? Uh, the most beautiful plane in the air. Um, I would probably say the 787, right? Um, for a couple of reasons, uh, Boeing 787. Uh, one, the wing structure, especially when it gets in air, it, it starts to it, it starts to bend. The um, uh, the ability of those wings are are fantastic engineering. Um, the flying experience is is great, right? The dimming windows, air circulation, um, cabin pressurization, where you don't get you know a uh, uh, you know the you ear pop, <laughs> yeah, the ear pop or the uh, uh, the the jet lag. Um, and it's it's a beautiful airplane, right? In uh, the A350 1000 uh, uh, 1000 for Airbus, right behind it is 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 is, is almost on par in my in my mind, right? Um, but that's that's a beautiful plane. Is the 787 now? There's lots of different other things to talk about with it, but you know when you talk about the flying experience, beauty of the plane, um, it was it, it was it was a game changer for our industry for sure. It, it definitely has sort of a, uh, a graceful, that's the one with the curved wingtips, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, that is a beautiful plane. Good choice. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on.
My guest today was Alex Krutz. A link to Alex's LinkedIn profile will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 